to the New Testament. I'm going to begin with some verses, three verses in Isaiah 65. So Isaiah 65 at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a delight it is for us to be gathered together this first day of the week, Sunday, the day that your Son, our Savior, was raised from the dead, having defeated even death. And he ascended to your right hand. It is now installed at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Lord, we do thank you for your amazing work in redemption. We thank you for creation, the book of general revelation, and we thank you for the scriptures, your special revelation, all 66 books. And we thank you for the book of Revelation, which gives us a good glimpse into the future, final consummation. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that makes us to understand these secrets, these Mysteries, these things that are made known to those that you are drawing out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of your blessed Son. We do thank you for our particular church, Oakland Hills, and uh, we pray, Lord, that we would continue to be a platform for gospel proclamation where people would be gathered in to be encouraged and to be equipped for service and for ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this morning, Revelation. Obviously, there are lots of opinions on the book of Revelation. A lot of division has occurred within the Christian church regarding the book of Revelation. Now, I'm putting up here what we might call a Christian worldview. Uh, each one of us have a world view. Uh, it has certain foundational commitments. There are certain bedrock commitments that we have made. And if you are a Christian, you have a different world view than those that are not Christians. And in essence, our world view would include a doctrine of creation. We are supernaturalist. If you're not blood-bought, if you're not a Christian, if you're not spirit-filled, you're an anti-supernaturalist. I mean, this is one of the great divisions amongst people, uh, why they don't see it from our perspective, because they are radically anti-supernaturalist. They live in a material world. The material world is all that there is. There is no spirit realm beyond. Uh, I mean, they think we're talking gibberish when we try to communicate with them, because we have different foundational commitments 
And uh, so we have a doctrine, a robust doctrine of supernatural creation, that God spoke the world into, the universe into existence. And then we have a doctrine of the fall in Genesis 3, for example, another point of great division. We believe that Adam was a federal head, and that when Adam fell into sin, that sin was passed on to all of his posterity. Now, this is radically opposed by non-Christians. They would, they would, that would be a hill to die on, to think that they are somehow connected to Adam. They would think this is preposterous you're talking about. That the, the, even if there is an Adam, they would think that's a mythical figure. But how in the world would God condemn me because of what happened back in Eden with Adam? Our connection with Adam is a major bedrock, foundational commitment, a hill that we would die on. Then the doctrine of recreation or restoration. And we see this much in the book of Isaiah. The idea of looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a second exodus. There's a number of descriptors that are used to present a future because God has made certain uh, promises, unconditional promises to the patriarchs which are not going to be thrust aside because of the sin of the Jewish people. There will be a remnant to inherit there will, you know, God says, I will be their God and they shall be to me a people. That will exist in the future. And then a final consummation. And we think of Revelation as a book in the Bible that speaks much about what we would know of as the final consummation. And in, we go from a Eden, the Garden of Eden, in Genesis... We come up to the city. In Revelation, we have a city. And I don't know whether you've thought of that as a biblical theme. You know that prophet, priest, and king run through the Bible. Temple runs through the Bible. The Son of God runs through the Bible. These are scarlet threads that run through the 66 books of Scripture. But whether you've thought of a city as one of these scarlet threads that, uh, for example, in Genesis 4, Genesis 4, 17, Cain was a city builder. Cain was all about building cities. And uh, he named the first one after his son, Enoch. Enoch. And uh, then at, at Babel, they were all about building a city. And of course, the city was going to stretch all the way up into heaven. And uh, so uh, the city appears there. And in the book of Hebrews, associated with Abraham, city... Uh, and then, of course, as I say, with Revelation uh, chapter 21, you have cities. So the theme of humans being city dwellers or looking at Revelation as this gigantic metropolis, 1,380 miles wide for the boundaries of the city, 1,380 miles. And uh, so I don't know whether in your mind when you go to heaven as a category and contemplate it and think about it, do you think of this vast metropolis, this city uh, that is coming down out of heaven? And uh, so there's a lot of important categories uh, that are described in Revelation. 
Um, let's see, what did I want to touch on before I go to the yellow? So, Revelation, in the Bible there are various genres. So, for example, the Psalms are poetry. And you have historical books, like Kings and Samuel. Uh, there are the epistles, there are the gospels, there's what's called the apocalyptic genre. And Revelation is apocalyptic. If you turn to Revelation chapter 1, the second word is apocalypsis. So that's the title. Revelation comes from the second word in our English translation there. And it means to make known. Okay? Revelation means to make known. Uh, it's related to, well, we'll get to that in a minute. But let us just know that Revelation alone in the New Testament is apocalyptic. And it has interpretive challenges. Okay? When you come to apocalyptic literature and you have bizarre symbols, how in the world do you interpret those? And uh, that has been very divisive in the Christian church. How to interpret Revelation? There's a vast spectrum of how you interpret. From literal, there are those Christians who think that it should be interpreted absolutely literal, and others that believe it needs to be interpreted as symbolic uh, literature. Now, parts of Daniel are apocalyptic. So, a lot of Daniel ends up in Revelation. You have uh, Daniel in the Psalms, Ezekiel and Isaiah. There are four Old Testament books in particular that come into the book of Revelation. Uh, many other books included, but those four in particular. But when we come to Daniel chapter 2, you have the giant. Nebuchadnezzar has a very weird dream. And he asks his soothsayers to come up with the interpretation. And they say, well, king, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. King says, no, you tell me the dream, then interpret. Oh boy, that's a whole other category. They have no clue. So he's, they're going to be put to death uh, for their failure to know the dream of the king. Well, Daniel has a night's sleep to think about it, and he is presented the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and he realizes that the king had this dream of this huge, gigantic figure made of different materials. And Daniel interprets it as to be the rise and fall of kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian, the Greece, Greek, and Roman. There's going to be a series over 490 years of these kingdoms that are going to rise and fall. So the, the apocalyptic image that Daniel was given in a dream vision of this gigantic figure Or A.D. 7, I mean, this is when Jerusalem falls, okay? Jerusalem, Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. Uh, so if Revelation was written by the Apostle John, before A.D. 70, 
then Revelation is about what happened at AD 70. Okay? That's what Revelation is about. What took place at the fall of Jerusalem. And that view then becomes... R.C. Sproul talks much about this, if this is a subject of interest to you. R.C. Sproul's book, The Last Days According to Jesus. Last Days. And he talks about the Olivet Discourse, which is related to this. The Olivet Discourse in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Where Jesus is sitting in Jerusalem, looking at this great temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he tells them that, that it's going to be destroyed. And they say, when? When, Jesus? This generation will not pass away until these things occur. Okay, so that puts a 40-year, Sproul develops the 40-year time. So this is 33 AD when Jesus is sitting there. So you take out, go out 40 years and you're out to 73 AD. The view that it's before AD 70 is then preterism, which means that Jesus is not going to return again. He already returned at AD 70. There's no future return of Jesus. He already returned. Um, R.C. Sproul goes, then he develops the partial preterist view, which he feels most Christians would be. Partial preterist. There were important things that happened at A.D. 70, but Jesus will return. And most, the majority view of the dating of Revelation is in the 80 to 90 A.D. period of time. Well after the fall of Jerusalem. So, as I say, the Olivet Discourse in the Synoptic Gospels is related to the book of Revelation. And uh, speaking of the future of Jerusalem falling, there's vi visual parables. Now, Greg Beale, which I've mentioned often, and uh, Dr. Harrison Perkins sat under... Greg Beale, when he was about 10 years at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. So Greg Beale has this 1,200-page volume on Revelation. He's interacting with 600 other authors as he works through the 22 chapters. Um, the scope of the scholarship is uh, breathtaking. But he brings in the idea that the very weird, bizarre, unusual images that are described in Revelation are visual parables. Visual parables are, is what they are. And it's multi-perspectival. Uh, you're, you're looking in on future events from different perspectives. So, you know, many understand Revelation to be a very linear development. If you're dispensational, if you're the Left Behind series, that kind of idea, the rapture, those events, if that's your view of how the future unfolds, that's another view. It's not the visual parable view, but it's a very literal view, a very literal. And I'll just mention that Coming out of the 1800s, there was very aggressive German scholarship that went after the text of Scripture. So one of the things that some Christians did to screw down Scripture and to make the interpretation uh, obvious, you could say, 
was to make it super literal. So in order to counteract the work of the German scholars attacking the scripture, some Christians went to the view that Revelation is ultra-literal. And it's exactly what it says in black and white. It's not needing to be interpreted by, they're not secrets or mysteries, but rather it is to be taken literally. Exactly what you read in black letter is what is meant. It was a defensive strategy. It was meant to be a defensive strategy against the rise of German criticism. But apocalyptic as a genre is generally not ever to be interpreted literally. You end up off in the wild blue yonder if you try to put apocalyptic in a very literal interpretation. So these are some of the challenges that we have when we get to the book of Revelation. Tracing the city, okay, I mentioned that, how the city is important in the Bible. It appears as early as Genesis chapter 4. It's very important at Babel, the tragedy of the human city, as they were arrogant and full of pride and boastful, and how God had to shut that whole project down. And he scattered people on the face of the earth, and he that's the, the rise of nations and ethnicities and languages was brought about because of the judgment at Babel. And the seven continents are filled with people. And uh, so uh, the Babel event is very important from the standpoint of tracing out the city as a theme in scripture. Um... Where is that? Okay. Um, Revelation 20 and the millennium. I mean, this is another aspect of literal, of course. So if you say a thousand, is it exactly a thousand? I mean, that's, there's also the, the passage in Scripture that talks about Abraham being wealthy, a man having cattle on a thousand hill. Now, you know, that's a figure of speech. To have cattle on a thousand hills would convey vast wealth. But are we really saying it's not 999, it's not 1100? You're using a thousand as a huge number. Uh, but again, if you're needing to screw down scripture defensively, if it says a thousand, it would be exactly a thousand. You come up with views of Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, most reformed folk uh, would be amillennial, which traces back at least to Augustine around 400 AD, which means that good and evil are continuing now in the Christian church for the 2,000 years. That the, the period of time mentioned in Revelation 20, this 1,000 years, was simply to mean a long period of time during which the city of God and the city of man would be in opposition to each other. There's war, uh, cosmic warfare going on between the city of God and the city of man, and this is now extended on for 2,000 uh, years. But we're not generally, uh, reformed people are looking at the, the imminent uh, return of Christ as the next event on the 
timeline. Okay? So these are some of the, we could say, points of division. Uh, when we get into the book of Revelation, there are lots of different views, and much of it is tied to Scripture. So as you go through the different views with different uh, theologians, they will footnote it back to Scripture. And uh, so these are things that we can uh, delve into. Um, one of the books I have in my library that I looked at this week is a book by William Dumbrell. William Dumbrell has been a very important author. The Moore Theological College in uh, Australia, um, I became, became acquainted with it maybe 20 years ago, uh, Graham Goldsworthy also associated with that uh, uh, theological college in Australia, but he has the book, The End of the Beginning. We know when we look at our Bible, if you go to the end of it, and you look at chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, his book is on those two chapters, and he calls it the end of the beginning. You know, so often if we were to, if I were to ask you to lay out the 4,000 years of history in the Bible, let's say from Abraham, 2000 BC to today, you've got 4,000 years of history, you would put Revelation at the end, and you would say there's a hopeful future contained in Revelation. You could say that, I mean, some summarize Revelation, Jesus wins, you could say. <laughs> Jesus wins. That, I mean, that's a simple uh, summary uh, of uh, Revelation. But William Dumbrell presents the way to think about this is that when we come to the end of Revelation 21 and 22, that's the end of the beginning. So if we were to draw out, let's say you were to draw out over four feet the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you would probably parcel it out over those four feet uh, so that Revelation would just be the last couple of inches. But the way that Dumbrell explains it, the way we need to think about it as Christians, is that when we come to Revelation 21, 22, it's like we're only two inches in from the beginning. We're just two inches in. And the rest of the four feet is what's to come yet. Uh, I mean, we're talking about a billion years in the future, the other way, uh, the eternal uh, city that God is going to bring to us uh, from heaven to earth. Uh, so when we think about the time, we often think, oh, it's been so long since creation, so long since the Garden of Eden, so long since Abraham so long since David, 3,000 years since David. But when we think about all of that 4,000 years of biblical history compared to what is future, it's just a speck of time. Uh, it, it barely registers on the four feet because you've got a billion years of eternity uh, on the other side. And uh, so when we get to Revelation 21, 22, that's just the end of the beginning. <laughs> We're just to the end of the beginning and we look into a, uh, an eternity in the future. Uh, so perspective, having, a different, having that kind of perspective that uh, we are now just completing the beginning. So let's look at our yellow handout. Hang on is another 
theme besides Jesus wins, you could say hang on. Revelation was written, of course, immediately to these seven churches. And uh, it was a time of persecution. You know, if we take it into the 80, 90 period of time, John is on the island of Patmos, and John the Apostle, probably 15 years of age when Jesus was crucified, uh, he would now, you know, be in his 80s. And he's writing during a time of persecution. And persecution was up and down. It was sporadic in the Roman Empire uh, over the first 300 years of church, Christian church history. Uh, when we come up to 312, there's the Edict of Milan from Constantine. The, Holy, the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity a permitted or a legal religion. And then by the time of 390, Theodosius makes it the only legal religion. So, but the first 300 years of Christian, Christian church, the waves of persecution were sporadic and of various intensities. Although John's revelation never quotes the Old Testament. Now that's an unusual thing. Uh, it's, it, there's no direct quote, so it's unusual in that regard that John's Revelation does not quote the Old Testament. Its language is saturated with Old Testament by means of allusion and echoes. As one writing at the climax of the prophetic tradition, so the canon is now going to be closed after John's writing. So we have then the 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, It is natural that John would draw in particular on prophetic models in the Old Testament. In Revelation, the church universal is called to maintain a faithful witness in the midst of persecution, following in the footsteps of the Lamb. The rich apocalyptic imagery is drawn nearly exclusively from the Old Testament. So these are estimates of how many references by allusion or echo This is the United Bible Society. And others are guessing, suggesting there are between 300 and 1,000 or more references to the Old Testament. So when we think of John having these dream visions and writing on a parchment what he has seen... He's writing it down, and the frequency and the number of Old Testament passages that come to his mind. Now, again, he doesn't have chapter and verse. Chapters come into the Bible in the 12th century. So John knows nothing of chapters in the Old Testament. Verses come into the Bible with the Geneva Bible, 1560. No verses until 1560. So John is getting these images and he sees the Old Testament books or scrolls and he brings them in as he writes the book of Revelation, page 2. The Old Testament books that come in in particular, Genesis, the idea of creation and fall is foundational Much of Revelation, of course, is fulfillment. God is fulfilling. God will fulfill what has been 
prophesied. Uh, let me just mention another dimension of disagreement would be where is heaven? I don't know whether you've thought about that much. Where is heaven? I mean, do you, can, do you think it's out some, uh, some galaxy somewhere? Do, I mean, do you think of it as a trillion miles away? Do you think of it as another dimension? Or is heaven right here? Is heaven on planet Earth? The planet Earth that we know? Uh, in the Milky Way uh, solar system. So some think of the, the, the Earth to be burnt up, to be toast, to be discarded, like in a multi-stage rocket, the earlier stages just fall away and they're scrap? Um, or does God renew and restore what he has created? Does God abandon planet Earth? And are we taken off to some new dimension to inhabit some new metropolis somewhere? Or is it planet Earth? Is planet Earth to be our eternal home? So these are differences in opinion. Uh, again, as we interpret and understand the book of Revelation. Exodus, especially the account of the plagues. Plagues comes into the book of Revelation. Isaiah and Ezekiel. Ezekiel is very much associated with the temple. You know, there's a lot of temple-related material in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is around 600 A.D. Uh, Daniel's around 600 A.D., um, they were taken by Nebuchadnezzar off of the Holy Land over to Babylon. Isaiah is around 700 B.C. The vision of the heavenly throne room in chapters 4 and 5. Uh, the final battle, judgment, a new Jerusalem. Zechariah is around 520 uh, the time of uh, re beginning to restore the temple after Cyrus's decree of 538, allowing the uh, exiles to go back and resettle Jerusalem. Zechariah is that period of time. Provides in imagery for the four horsemen. Lampstands. Every eye will see him, even those that have pierced him. Daniel 7, uh, very important material. The Son of Man, which is the the that's how Jesus identified himself, was the Son of Man, and that's taken from Daniel chapter 7. The key theme of faithful witness in the face of persecution is modeled on stories from Daniel. Daniel, of course, and his three friends were taken, as I say, from uh, Israel and taken back to uh, Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar in the, around 600 B.C., Page 3, Revelation shows the universalization of prophetic fulfillment. Uh, a promise once narrowly associated with Israel are now seen to apply to God's people from every nation. And you might put down Isaiah 50, 42 and Isaiah 49. Um, you know, those are the key text. Some of the key text in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6. Are, part, are two of the uh, servant songs. And when Greg took us through Isaiah, we saw how the servant of the Lord is going to be given the enormous task of not merely restoring the 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob, but he's going to be given the task of restoring what happened at Babel. You know, you have the 70 nations in the table of nations in Genesis 10 as the nations were scattered on all seven continents by the confusion of language after the tragedy of Babel, now we have the reversal of Babel 
and those nations are going to be regathered uh, by the servant. And so when we talk about the idea here of that every nation, uh, another thing I'll mention is the tree of life. The tree of life is in, uh, you know, in Genesis. They are told not to eat of the tree of life, and then the tree of life disappears until Genesis, until Revelation. Until Revelation 2 and Revelation 22. And it talks about how the leaves of the tree will heal the nations. And uh, so this tree of life, which was very important in the fall, comes back in Revelation as very important. Also, God walked with Adam in some sense in the coolness of the day. They had communication, whether face-to-face or person-to-person. And, of course, then there's the Shekinah glory through much of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple. But in Revelation 21 and 22, we have God, again, communicating person-to-person with humans. And uh, so... What was lost after the fall in the garden, this interpersonal communication, one-on-one, if you will, comes back in Revelation 21 and 22. Um, there's the, that's part of the restoration that we're seeing. So the Lion of Judah, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Horsemen, the Exodus-type plagues, Babylon... The tribulation and persecution, divine protection, the tree of life, uh, the wings of an eagle, uh, the, the harlot, the apostasy. These are some of the references on the right in Revelation and on the left where in the Old Testament these themes uh, came in. Page 4, a victorious battle of God's people. Again, many people think that the battle is going to play out on planet Earth. When I visited Israel in 1994, we went to Megiddo, and uh, we looked out on the plain of Megiddo, and there are many Christians, millions of Christians that have been taught that's exactly where the final battle is going to take place, in this great plain over in Israel at Megiddo. The final battle referenced in Revelation is going to actually take place on this geographic place in uh, Israel, Armageddon. Uh, the divine spirit as the power for God's people. The favorite number of Revelation, you would probably know, uh, seven. The description of God as the one who is and was and is to come is an interpretation of Yahweh based on Exodus 3, Isaiah 41, 44, 48. And then you have the insert. This is taken out of the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And I just went to Revelation 5 and Revelation 21 to give you a sense as to some of the scope and the breadth, the number of Old Testament books that figure into the book of Revelation. So Revelation 5 is the throne room. It's the throne room. And you have the scroll that could not, you know, nobody was found to open the scroll until they found uh, that Jesus could open the the scroll, loose the seals, 
the Lion of Judah, the slain lamb with seven eyes, uh, the new song, myriad of myriads. Uh, I think it's the King James that probably has 10,000 times 10,000. They use, you know, these are vast numbers. It's not to be exactly 10,000, but 10,000 times 10,000 ends up with a staggering number of angels singing, worthy is the Lamb. Power and wealth and praise. So you can see from just this sketch of what is in Revelation 5 that uh, the visual parables that John is given to see uh, brings in so much from the Old Testament. So many threads come into the tapestry of what he then writes, what we know of as the book of Revelation. And then Revelation 21, if we look at, if you turn to Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So the sea is generally thought of as a stand-in for chaos. Okay, The sea is topsy-turvy. The sea is a chaotic kind of place. So in Greek, you have cosmos for a perfectly ordered creation. So you could say at the end of the six days of creation, when God rested on the seventh day, his creation was found to be perfect and flawless, and it was perfect cosmos. Now in Greek, the opposite of cosmos is, is the chaos, okay? Chaos. Get smart. You know, was always up against chaos. Um, so chaos is the antithesis of the cosmos. So the idea here is that if it has no sea, the sea was no more. That's to say that chaos has been drawn out of creation in, totally. You have no element of chaos any longer, and we are back to Eden before the fall, okay? And uh, we have God's good creation having been restored here with a new heaven, a new earth, no chaos, no sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be to him a people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now this is the covenant slogan. Okay, this is a covenant slogan. So if you're a Berean, if you're biblically knowledgeable, you would see, or in your mind would have popped the word covenant. If you see that phrase, just like if you see the word bless in scripture, if you see the word bless, or you see the word curse, immediately pop into your mind, covenant pops in. You say, where's the covenant? Because from Deuteronomy 28, you always have, those are covenant sanctions. The two outcomes of a covenant 
when God is in a relationship, a formal relationship with people, the two sanctions are either a curse or a blessing. So you immediately import covenant when you hear bless or curse. Likewise, when you hear the slogan, I will be, uh, they will be my people and I will be to them their God, that is the covenant slogan. And you would then know immediately you're in the context of a covenant. And uh, so being able to supply the missing themes when you read through various verses is a mark of someone that is more, you know, you've, you've equipped yourself to be knowledgeable as to these key words that trigger in your mind the bigger context so that you get the full meaning that's being presented there. Um, Jumping ahead to 22, just a, la- a couple more verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of that tree were, the, were for the healing of the nations. So again, the scope of this is very, very, very broad. Uh, this is not a narrow uh, part of humanity, but it's a very, it's a universal, okay? We could say that it's a universal idea here is that God is again drawing people from every tribe, every kindred, every people group, you know, this is from Revelation 5 where this language is mentioned that God is, again, he's reversing the Tower of Babel dispersion. And at Pentecost, they all heard people were in Jerusalem from faraway places and they each heard in their own language. And uh, so the reversal of Babel occurs with the drawing together of people from every tribe and people group. The nations are being healed by these fruit of the tree of life here. So, again, it's a revelation, as you well know, is a vast, vast, vast theme, and it is greatly informed by the Old Testament, but it points towards a very good future. It alerts us that there is the context, the immediate context, as John writes this, was persecution. So the, the summary being to hang on, hang on through the persecution. Jesus wins. Uh, and the, uh, again, Dumbrell's idea is that when we come to the end of Revelation 21 and 22, we've only come to the end of the beginning. And what lies ahead for those with God for eternity is vastly greater than the 4,000 years of Bible history from Genesis 12 to the end of uh, Revelation. Okay, so let us leave it there. Doug, would you want to close us with prayer this morning? Okay.